0: Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. The reading today comes from John 15, 12 to 15. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I've made known to you. Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to be here. Might pray, and then I'll, after that, I'll just sort of introduce myself for those who may not have a clue who I am. Which is no problem, because I'm not very anyone very important. So you're quite welcome to not have a clue. But let's pray, Father, as we uh, just ex- examine and explore the topic before us this morning. The idea of being a friend of God. Lord, help us to be amazed. Help us to be humbled. Help us to be in awe of the enormous privilege this is. So we do ask that you might uh, guide us as we look into um, your word. You might reveal yourself to us in it. And this we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Right, just for those who may not be aware, I do actually recognise a few faces around, people that I may have taught, they may have not yet forgiven me, um, back at, in my Mueller days even um, you know, parents of kids I have now at Grace College. Um, I'm uh, married, I have two children, six grandchildren, which I know is hard to believe, just looking at me, um, it was a joke. <laughs> it's a tough, tough audience. Anyway, um, I currently work at Grace Lutheran College, where I teach uh, a bit of English and um, Uh, Religion and ethics, and that sort of thing. A bit of history as well. Um, And I have, over the uh, over the years, probably about 20 years, I suppose, uh, taught a little bit of church history um, to um, masters, uh, divinity students, and bachelor of theology students, first through Mueller College of Ministries, and then at um, Brisbane School of Theology. So, got a few few of those things. My um, son's name is Michael. Um, he's probably better known than me. I, I used to be you know, known as, well, he used to be known as my son. Now I'm known as his dad. So things change over time. You may have experienced something similar yourselves. So we have our topic before us, friendship with God. And, and what a friend we have in Jesus. Let's have the second slide. Picture the scene. It's the night before Jesus is to be arrested. He knows that before him lay Gethsemane, a show trial, torturous beating, the agony of crucifixion. On this night, he gathers his closest friends together to speak with them for the last time before he fulfills the purpose of his coming. He speaks to them to prepare them to face the events of the next few days though everything about those days still finds them unprepared and it leaves them confused and frightened but Jesus knows how important these words are he knows that their substance and their power will speak not only to the original apostles as they proclaim the message of the gospel in the years ahead for them but to every follower of Jesus until he returns to gather his own to himself and to execute the final judgment. In these few chapters near the end of John's Gospel, Jesus makes, among many other statements of assurance and encouragement and warning, a momentous declaration. He says, as recorded in John 15:5, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Next slide, please. So let's just let that sink in for a moment, that statement. Let it sink in. Here we have the incarnate, sinless Son of God, the one who, according to Revelation 5, is due blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever, Calling his mortal, sinful, frail human followers friends. See, being a servant of the living God is momentous enough, but he calls his disciples friends. And that declaration, as Jesus' teaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in chapters 14 and 16 makes clear, includes all who follow Jesus, not just the apostles of the first century in Palestine, but us in 21st century Australia here at uh, here at church gathered this morning. Next slide, please. So the question is, how can that be? It sounds like something that's beyond the realms of possibility. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, perhaps you can imagine that maybe... There'd be some people who are far greater than perhaps all of us, maybe most of us at least, that might be among a select few that God might name as friends. You know, we can think of some of those great saints, those great heroes of the Old Testament. You know, Noah, for example, in Genesis 6 is described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He's said to have walked with God. Which simply means, obviously, that he walked, he he lived with God continuously in close communion. Noah was the one chosen to rescue from the flood um, all of uh, sinful humanity. He was going to be the new representative of, uh, of human beings. He was going to actually start humanity again. He was that one. Or Abraham, the one who's called the friend of God in 2 Chronicles 20 and again in Isaiah 41 and James 2. He was so close to God that in Genesis 18, God decided to confide in him regarding the fate of Sodom. And God even allowed Abraham to try to bargain with him in the hope that he might, that is God, might relent. Or Moses, to whom God spoke through the vehicle of a a burning bush, and to whom he revealed his name. He said, I am who I am. Called himself the Lord, Yahweh the one who is. And Moses was the one who had um, the regular privilege, having rescued Israel from from captivity in Egypt, of meeting with God person to person. Or David, the greatest king of Israel, the one God singled out as a man after his own own heart. Or Isaiah, who not only saw a, a vision of the one that a host of angels called holy, 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 but also just conversed with him. Number f- this next slide, thanks. Not about you, but if I was kind of look at myself, I reckon I'm perhaps not in that league. Surely if friendship with God is a possibility for human beings, it must be reserved for people of that kind of caliber and not for the likes of me. It might be for you, I'm not going to make any judgments, but certainly not for me. Yet, when we look at the lives of these great saints, these great heroes of the Old Testament, just a little more closely, we realise that they too had feet of clay. Noah got drunk soon after um, exiting the ark and planting a vineyard. Abraham, out of fear, lied, saying that his wife Sarah was his sister so as to protect himself. Moses made every excuse imaginable to avoid going back to Egypt as a chosen one, one chosen by God to, to rescue Israel from slavery. And David used his position to commit adultery and murder. And Isaiah, having seen a vision of God most holy, was confronted with the reality of his own sin. You might remember that really famous passage in Isaiah 6, verse 5, where he says, woe is me, for I am lost. This the idea of I am undone, I'm unraveled before God. I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think this then maybe suggests that the closest of their relationship with God was something maybe that God initiated rather than them. Maybe it wasn't something they earned by virtue of their character. Their character was not impeccable. Rather, it was something initiated by God. It was, in fact, a gift. And what did God do with these flawed people? He transformed them. He employed them in his service. He made them agents of the work he wished to accomplish at that point in time. Noah and his family re-established humanity after the flood. Abraham was the one with whom God established the covenant of promise which was fulfilled in Jesus. Moses led God's people from captivity in Egypt, which was the defining event in Israel's history. David was promised that his descendant, that is Jesus, would rule forever. Isaiah was given the privilege of prophesying the coming of the suffering servant, whom we know to be Jesus, and the final redemption of God's people. He did that more vividly than any other of the prophets in the Old Testament. And all of this seems to confirm that being in a close, personal relationship with God, a relationship that Jesus calls friendship, is something that God sets in motion, that God initiates. Those God calls friends, not really worthy of the friendship he offers. See, friendship with God is a gift of grace. Next slide. Let's go back a bit further. Let's go back to the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, where we find that God created humanity, mankind, as personal, relational beings. This is part of what it is for us to be made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26, God says, let us, not that, us, make man in our image. Who is us? Well, it can only be the triune God. The God who exists as being in relationship. That's being hyphen in hyphen relationship. Relationship is in fact fundamental to what God is, to his very being. If you're going to be a philosopher, you call that, it's an ontological statement, a statement about his being. It is what he is before it is something that he does. Thus, when we're made in his image, we are made as personal, relational, relational beings just as he is notice how the creation of mankind is described in Genesis 127 or is described in Genesis 127 it says so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them see man is male and female man is personal relational A unity in the context of diversity. And then notice how marriage is described in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Part of our being in the image of God is that we are made to relate We are personal beings. We engage in relationship. And the one with whom we engage with relationship most satisfyingly and completely is God. In the midst of all of this, this creation of man and the establishment of marriage and that kind of thing, we see God actually actively in relationship with humans. He speaks with Adam. He provides a suitable partner with whom Adam can share close and intimate communion in the person of Eve. God does this out of love or the people he has made, and as something that's consistent with the plans that he has for mankind, that is, that they will fill the earth and care for it as God's viceroys. And even when Adam and Eve sinned by seeking to usurp the rightful rule of God, where do we find God? He's walking in the cool of the garden. He calls out to Adam and Eve, who are trying to hide from him because of their rebellion, and their newfound sense of shame. And even when God shows, and even then rather, God shows grace. For he made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, humanity's relationship with God is broken, but it's not irreparably broken. From the very outset, God sets about restoring that which is broken. He begins with providing a covering for sin and shame. And he ends with the sacrifice of his son on a Roman cross at the hands of sinful men. Now let's jump to that final discourse of Jesus the night before his arrest. And let's look at a few select verses from John 15. I'll just read those, a few verses. I've got a couple of extras up there on the slide which you can um, read ahead with, but just a couple. I'll just read the few. It says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his father, his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. In these last few words, as uh, as Jesus uh, makes these statements before the the apostles gathered. In these few words, he offers two proofs of the reality and the extent of his love. Two proofs of friendship. Let's have a look at the next slide. The first is in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Having just commanded his followers to love one another as he has loved them, he tells them how much he has loved them. He is the someone who lays down his life for his friends. As uh, Drew Hunter wrote in a blog for Desiring the Desiring God website, he he puts it this way, he said, he wanted his disciples to see the cross and think, I understand now. He substituted himself for me under God's wrath. And he did it because he views me, as his treasured friend. See, Jesus' death both purchases and proves his friendship. The second proof is that Jesus, has made, that Jesus made known to his disciples all that I have heard from the Father. See, masters don't treat servants this way. In ancient times, servants were simply seen as living tools. They worked for their master, they did the master's bidding they certainly were not ordinarily taken into the confidence of the master. But friendship's not like that. Jesus tells his friends the things he has heard from his father. And that doesn't stop with Jesus' death and eventual ascension into heaven, as John 16 demonstrates. Everywhere from verse 12 he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. Revelation of God and his plans continues through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' words in John 15 also show something of the nature of this friendship. Certainly it's grounded in love, but it's also asymmetrical. See, normal human friendship, as we no doubt know, um, is characterised by a kind of equality. There's no real expectation that anyone would be obedient to the other. If uh, there's a call to be obedient to a friend, then perhaps it's not friendship. We'd probably call it some other name. But, let's have a look at the next slide. In this passage, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, it sounds like Jesus is saying that friendship with him is conditional upon obedience. However, I think this is um, not quite what the sentence is saying. You see, the key word here is if, if you Obey me, if you follow my commands. If is a a word used to express a conditional connection between two parts of a sentence. But there is more than one way it can be understood. We could understand if as causal. That is, obedience would be a necessary condition of friendship with Jesus. If we don't obey, we can't be his friend. Another way, though, is to understand if as indicative for example, I, maybe some of you have had this experience, might have, might have a sniffle and then head off for a, um, a COVID test. If the test is positive, then I have COVID-19 and need to do, follow all those other procedures. However, the test hasn't caused the infection, it's simply in indicated that it was there. And I suspect if, in this case, is used in that way, Obeying Jesus' commands indicates that we are friends of Jesus. Obedience on our part is proof of friendship. It's not the cause of friendship. It's the proof of friendship. We obey him willingly because we love him as our greatest friend. In addition, obedience on our part really just has to be part of our relationship with Jesus because not only is he our friend, he's also our Lord. The fact that he calls us friends, or calls any one of us a friend, uh, is if, uh, uh, as it is um, with the fact that we're designated sons and heirs of God, is actually an act of grace. Our friendship with God is a blood-bought gift. Jesus offers himself to us, then, both as our cosmic ruler and our closest friend. Let's move to the next slide. All right. We've got all of it at once, haven't we? Yep. Okay, we'll just whip through all of those. Um, okay. So a few th- points of application. This seems like a lot, but it won't take that long. First up, a friend of Jesus makes knowing God their first priority. Um, I was reading a bit uh, from Rick Warren as I was thinking about the things to say this morning, and he suggests that we, the things that we perhaps um, think most about or speak most about, maybe even brag about, might be indicative of the things we love most. And perhaps if we stop for a moment and do a quick personal assessment of what we think about and speak about and so on most, it's possible we might need to consider realigning our priorities. Jeremiah 9 and 23 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise men boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So are the things that we boast about, the things that we speak about, the things that we devote our thinking to, those things uh, which would give delight to the Lord Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen says you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart Philippians 3 Paul goes on and says but what uh, whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord secondly care about what God cares about Care about what God cares about. Uh, 1 Samuel 16 indicates that God cares about character rather than image or accomplishment. In verse 7 it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, this is when they're looking for David as a potential king, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, Maybe we need to align our hearts with God's heart. Ephesians 5.22 tells us kind of what that means. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Thirdly, we need to maintain close communion with God. Again, quoting Drew Hunter. Relationships thrive with conversation. As we read, receive, and remember God's word, we hear him address us as friends. And then we pray. We thank him. We confess our sin to him. We share our burdens with him. We do this throughout the day, not reporting as servants, but relating as Friends, remember First Thess- Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul reminds us that we must pray without ceasing. You know, I heard uh, the other day, I think it was a radio report or something, that people with smartphones and other kinds of devices will check their various messaging and social media services about 85 times a day. Mm-hmm. 85 times a day. Now clearly there are some people in some work where that's almost necessary, but other people do that anyway just as part of their normal activity, 85 times a day. I guess it made me stop and wonder, how many times a day do I do that? And secondly, how many times a day do we check in with God? 85 times a day? Once in the morning at a devotional time or every second day when we remember? How many times do we check in with God? Fourthly, trust Jesus in every circumstance, good, bad, indifferent. You know, trouble and pain and grief are part of the human experience in a fallen world. But Jesus remains the friend who knows us by name and is with us in all circumstances. In speaking of himself as the good shepherd, Jesus says in Matthew 10, The sheep hear my voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Do we know his voice? Do we know that he knows us by name? Which suggests he knows us personally. He knows us individually. He knows each one of us. As we look around, we've got a mass of people and family groups and so on. He knows each one of us individually. I'm reminded of the, uh, the story of Mary Magdalene after... Jesus' body had kind of disappeared. You remember, she was walking in the garden, having been to the tomb and found that the body wasn't there, and she was despairing. She was weeping. And uh, she sees a man that she's supposed to be the gardener. And uh, while she's weeping, she says to him, because she's really desperate, she really wants to find Jesus' body. She wants to find the one who had treated her with dignity and with respect. She wants to know if he was the one who carried her body or his body away, and she wanted to know where he'd put it. And then the man, whom she didn't really recognise, supposed, supposed to be the gardener, turned, and he just said one word, he said, Mary. Right? Mary. The risen Jesus knew her by name, and that changed everything. Right? He knew her by name, that changed everything. And as she recognises him, she turns to him and she clings to him. She calls him Rabboni, teacher. Rabboni, teacher. She shows that deep respect for him. But he called her by name. See, every friend of God is known by name. And because God is our friend, and our friend is God himself, we can confidently cast our burdens on him since he both loves us and is mighty enough to bear them. You might remember from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first what the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, there's no denial of trouble. But it says to cast that upon him, seek first God's uh, kingdom and his righteousness. 1 Peter 5, verse 6 says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And The last one, love as Jesus loves. John 15, verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? Well, he died in our stead. He loved us enough to give himself completely. So it's painfully obvious, I think, that to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as Jesus loved would be to be willing to die for them. Wouldn't that change everything about the way we relate to others? If our love was so deeply sacrificial that we would be willing to give completely of ourselves to another. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And that will change everything for us and for the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can, despite our amazement and incredulity, call ourselves friends of God, for so you have designated us. Father, we thank you that you do care for us, that you are willing to bear our, our sorrows, our anxieties, our concerns, that you do and are willing to walk with us day by day, that you have in Jesus shown what love really is, and that you know us by name. You are our friend who knows our name. Thank you, Lord, for this. Amen.